0: Welcome to this episode of Creative Mind, I'm Bobby Brill. And this week, we're gonna get really deep into the world of creating video games. The last episode was kind of a quick introduction into just the concept of video games. But this week, we talk with Rez Graham about programming video games. And that sounds, you know, kind of boring. A lot of ones and zeros in programming language. But really, this is probably one of the best talks you're gonna hear if you or if someone you love is interested in creating video games because Res breaks down the whole process of creating video games and a lot has changed since Pac-Man Mario Brothers Madden a lot of things have changed with gaming in that they're not just these big AAA tentpole machine games we've got mobile games small games story games games that don't look like traditional video games. And Rez really breaks that down for us. So really, sit back, grab a pen and paper, take some notes because you are going to get a lot of great information on the world of programming video games. And here we go. So when somebody comes to you with this big giant question of, I wanna make a video game, and you stop laughing, what is some of the steps to do this correctly? How do I start
1: thinking about programming a video game? Well, programming is often not even the first step, right? So the first step is usually figuring out what what is the thing that you're actually trying to make and figuring out the core design and all of that stuff. And there's people who are better at talking about that than I am. So once you have the idea of what it is that you're trying to do, you know, I want to create a, a game where dogs and cats fight each other for resources on an alien planet or something. Okay.
0: You read my mind exactly because it's exactly the game I had in mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so then what we do is we start talking about the technology. The first thing that I want to do that I want to figure out is what platforms are, are we going to target? What are we going to try and run on? Is this a mobile game? Are we trying to do a fairly small limited game like a mobile game? Are we trying to do more of a core game like PC, Mac? Are we gonna try and target consoles? Do we wanna make this a Switch game? Do we wanna make this a you know, PS4 and so on? And that's three
0: totally different animals, right? Is there correlation between the two or is it you
1: pick one and that's where you go? So there's mobile, which is iPhone, Android, and tablet, which is similar, but you know, sort of better. And the, so mobile games are like sort of the most primitive type of game. Okay. Just because of resources and things like that that you have in the, in the uh, mobile world. Your phone is not going to be as powerful as your PC, typically, for gamers. Right, okay. Then you have the things like the Switch. Nintendo is kind of its own beast because uh, the Switch and, and any Nintendo products are generally lower end in terms of pure hardware performance. So you have to deal with that. So you're not going to, on a Switch versus, say, a PS4, they're just going to have very different performance characteristics. So you have the kind of mid-core things like a Switch. And then above that, you have your what I would call more like your core gaming systems. So that's going to be PlayStation, Xbox, and PC as well. And if you are if you know you're only targeting PC, you can generally go even better. But typically, you're going to be like typically the PC and PS4 and Xbox and stuff are kind of the highest at that end.
0: It, it seems like that level of game. That's the big budget stuff. That's studios. Yep. That's so that's my next question
1: is how much money do you have? <laughs> right? Okay. And how many resources do you have? You know, I've worked on projects that are two and a half people big. Right? It's 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 me, it was me, an artist, and the designer spent half their day. That was two and a half people on one project. And I've worked on games like the Sims 4, which was about 250 people at peak. So you know which is two orders of magnitude larger so like how big is your team how much time do you have you can make whatever you want as long as it's within time and within the current physical limitations of you know modern computing so you have to really think about that so that's yeah that's where we get games like ghost of tsushima for example is a big open world AAA massive product i don't know how many people they had but it was in the hundreds i'm sure and then you have on the other end of the spectrum you have stardew valley which is a small indie game made by basically one person. Um, Although that person was working on it for a very long time. (laughs) Indie games are still a thing though, right? Oh yeah. It's not common, but the lone developer is very uncommon these days, but it does happen because you need to be a unicorn at that point. You need to have the technical skills. You need to have the artistic skills. You need to have the design skills to bring everything together and then the discipline to actually do it which is a whole other thing.
0: We're gonna get into that, the, the coding aspect of it, the design, a little bit of the programming aspect of it. But once I've got in my thinking, okay, I, I know what I wanna develop on. And let's say for, I would say PC sounds the most common to me. That sounds like the most, is that the sure. safest bet? If somebody wants to start designing?
1: Depends on what you mean by safest, but it's certainly the easiest to get started with by far. Okay. Not mobile. No, mobile is not the easiest to start with at all because you have to deal with the hardware. With PC, since it's a programming talk, I'm going to get a little technical on some things, so you'll have to forgive that.
0: And forgive me when I go, um, you said computer, what do you mean?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just give an example of where PC is easier. One, you're going to be developing on a PC. The thing When you're typing in code, when you're doing stuff, it's going to be on a PC or a Mac of some kind. Oh, right, makes sense. When I say PC, I'm going to mean PC and Mac they, while they have certainly big differences, they're essentially equivalent for our our purposes. Then if you want to make a console game, you're going to be pushing it to a console or whatever. So like adding console or adding mobile is just an extra step on top of everything. The other thing that makes PC easier, and this was the technical part that I was going to dig into a little bit, is just as an example, you know, your PC has, call it 32 gigs of RAM or something, and your console might have some amount of memory as well, right? If you run out of memory on a console, oftentimes what's gonna happen is you're gonna crash. It's just gonna lock up. On PC, if you start running out of memory, it's gonna use your hard drive and start swapping stuff to your hard drive. So you have more sort of headroom on a PC, which makes it easier to develop on. Because while you're running the game, say your running game might take two gigs of RAM or something, when you're debugging the game, when you have a, an engine attached to it, when you're like, trying to figure out what's going on with it, your development build of the game, is gonna use sometimes four times as much of of RAM as as you would need, right? You need more memory to be able to do that. So in a lot of ways, PC is just sort of easier to develop on. And it's always gonna be that first step. You're always gonna be like writing code on a PC or whatever, and then having to push it to some external device. Now you asked about pushing it to a console. Xbox has something where you can kind of do that. But basically, if you're gonna develop for like PS4 or Switch, you need a dev kit. And so that's a, a special development hardware, a hardware that you rent from Sony or from Nintendo, and they send it to you. I, I have some in my office. We're trying to get some for the Switch, but we have some already for PS4. Uh, and they just look like fancy consoles, basically. And what you end up doing is you, you compile on your, comp- on your PC and you push that, that build to the dev box and then that's hooked up to your TV or whatever and you can sort of play it on the hardware right there because the hardware is different. And so, you, know, you have this extra step. And it's the same thing with mobile. Now mobile, a lot of times you do have an emulator. Uh, with, with consoles, you, you don't. I've never, I've never used an emulator for, a con, for any modern console, but for an iPhone or something or if you're trying to develop on an Android, you, you will often have an emulator, Emulator is not perfect, but it gets you sort of fast iteration. You're like, okay, let me push to my phone. You hook up your phone or whatever and connect directly to it.
0: And to clarify on mobile, when we're talking about a mobile game, a mobile game is different than an app? No, they're basically
1: the same thing. I mean, an app is, is, an, is an application that's running on your mobile device. So yeah, it's the same thing. Yep. a game. Yep. Okay, is just, just
0: to clarify. Got it. When somebody's going to sit down and wants to program this game mm-hmm. and they're on their PC Is it, do they need to use the different engines that that are being taught? Or is this something where you've got to learn code, you don't need to learn code? Can you start at the bottom or is it a steep learning curve? And I know that's a loaded question. (laughs) uh, There's a lot
1: to unpack in just that question. So one of the first questions I'm going to ask myself, once I have a target, once I have the game idea, the first question I'm going to ask myself is... What kind of third-party middleware am I going to use? And when I say middleware, that's we're talking engines, libraries, things like that. What am I going to use? Because not there's not just engines. There's also libraries and things like that. You know, um, if I'm going to make a if I'm going to make a network, you know, like a shooter network, like a network shooter game, a multiplayer shooter game. Well, everyone's favorite use,
0: game, Doom, where we all logged in and 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 chased goblins around and shot each other in a LAN party, that kind of game.
1: If we're going to make a game like that then well the question is okay cool so what's our server technology are we going to try and do it in house or are we going to do like AWS or something you know Amazon's service what engine am i going to use what you know middleware am i going to stack on top of that am i going to try and write my own networking layer or am i going to use an off the shelf networking layer you know pathfinding is a, or ai is another good one right am i going to use kinegon or some or you know navmesh or some navpower sorry or some other type of tool, or am I going to use, you know, write my own thing? And so all of these questions come up. And the big first question is, what engine am I going to use? And that, that could be no engine. It could be homegrown. The big ones out there, there's a bunch of them out there. You can search for them. There's tons and tons and tons of different ones. The major players right now are Unity and Unreal. Those are the big ones. CryEngine is kind of trying to come into this world. You know, Amazon has its own Lumberyard thing that's trying to come into this world. But the two big ones right now are Unity and Unreal. Those are the two. And they're very different from each other. Even though on the surface to a layman, they may look very similar, they're completely different under the covers. How you develop stuff is completely different.
0: And is that, are they different because of the type of games that they develop? Or is it just, or is it a different way of thinking or looking at games. It makes Both. it different. Yeah. Really? Okay.
1: They have similarities as, as everything does, but um, they've focused on different things and they have very different histories. Unreal used to be the name, is the name of a video game. There was a game called Unreal, which came out in I think the late nineties or something, maybe early two thousands. And that like Unreal was a game. And then they're like, well, let's license this engine for you know tens of thousands or whatever it was. And then there's Unreal 2 and Unreal Tournament and all these, all these things. Um, and Epic is the name of the company that made this. And so with Unreal 3, they were, like it became very popular for a lot of companies to use it. i worked at a company that used it, in fact. Unreal 4, they started uh, partway through Unreal 4, they're like, let's make it free and do more of a a, like, almost royalties type thing. The way that Unreal works is once, you can use it for free. Once you've made a certain amount of money, then you start paying epic, you know, 10% or whatever it is. I forget the actual number.
0: Okay, kind of like a license, uh, a royalty-style yep. licensing fee. It's a licensing,
1: yeah, like that. Un- uh, Unity works somewhat similarly, but has its own license. You can look up the licenses. They're all, they have their own way of doing it. Uh, my point is that Unreal started as a video game company and turned into an engine company, though they still make games. I mean, Fortnite is quite successful right. and makes probably a significant percentage of their income, would be my guess. Whereas Unity is the exact opposite. They started as a technology company building an engine and they got popular really fast. So a lot of the, a lot of people's big issues with Unity are actually more growing pains, things like that, right? <laughs> Unity, they, they made some early decisions that haunted them later on and they're actually fixing a lot of those early decisions now. They've, you know, they've hired, you know, big, technical powerhouses like mike acton and people like that and they're they're restructuring a lot of their internal stuff and they've gotten just man even in the last five years they've gotten uh significantly better than they were where they're starting to be real contenders so what are the big differences well i'm I'm gonna just throw some of the really big differences that are out there Unreal is really suited for larger games. If I'm if if the game that we're making our fictional PC game we're about to make is more on the AAA, I have a budget behind it, and it's like a AAA game, Unreal is going to have a bigger point in its you know it's going to have a bigger draw. Unreal's rendering technology is light years ahead of Unity.
0: So if I'm making a game that has really good 3D graphics, is visually appealing, maybe based off of an existing IP, I'm going to do
1: this. I'm going to follow Unreal. Excuse me. Unreal has the better has the better rendering engine. And when I say rendering, it's really like lighting, especially. So like if I'm going to make a horror game that's really about atmosphere and that kind of stuff, Unreal is probably what I might look at. Okay. Because it's it's really really amazing lighting compared to a lot of... Now, that having been said, Unity has really come up in, in its own rendering technology in the last several years too. They're competing with each other, so they're neck and neck. And the best thing to happen to Unity, the absolute best thing that could have ever happened to Unity is Unreal going free and becoming a real competitor. Because now they're competing with each other, <laughs> so it's an arms race, which is amazing for us as developers, because that's what we want.
0: As, you're, as you were saying earlier, you can actually just go to their site and just start pulling down sample programs to play off of, to, to design off of, and, and really go off of it.
1: Unreal has a larger learning curve than Unity. Unity is sort of easier to get going, I think. However, Unreal, to get something from sort of, to get something instantaneously playable, Unreal tends to be a little easier, just because they have a bunch of templates and things already ready to go. But... They have a larger learning curve. Unreal has full source code, which for a, an engineer like me is a draw. I like, I like having full access to the source code of the engine. You can dig through the engine and see what it's doing. You can change it if you really want to, though you probably shouldn't. And with Unity you don't have that, and that can be a real issue. With Unreal I could write in, in C++ if I want to, for an engineer, again, for a technical person, that's a positive. Because if I need something, C++ is higher performance than something like C Sharp, which is what Unity uses. So if I need to say, okay, this is going to be an expensive operation, I can pull it into C++, I can do something super fast, and I have that full customization. With Unity, you don't. You're living in C Sharp and that's your that's your life.
0: And, and C, so C++ and C Sharp, that's actual coding coding, where, where you're looking at just numbers and symbols, and you have to, it's a whole language that some people can decipher by looking at, and some people go, I have no idea what any of this means. But is that, do you need that C++ and C-sharp coding background for these?
1: Is it just like an interface? No. Depends on the game you're making. That's really the the question. So here's the other nice thing about Unreal, and I'll talk about all the positives of Unity in a minute because I think I've been mostly saying positives about Unreal. One big positive about Unreal is that it has something called Blueprint. And Blueprint is a visual programming language. It's you're dragging around boxes of things and connecting wires and stuff. And designers especially love, most designers I've worked with love it. And
0: that makes sense. Yeah. yeah that, that's that old school way of, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say really horrible things. Back when we were doing Flash and HTML and, and, and Dreamweaver and stuff, you know, what you saw was what you get was really easy for a lot of us who had no idea what we were doing to make something, I don't want to say good, but passable.
1: It's sort of like that. Yeah. It's, um, you know, if you look up unreal blueprint, anyone who's listening to this can just Google unreal blueprint, you'll see what it looks like Do an image search for it. Um, it looks like a flow chart. If you've ever seen like a programming flow chart, it's, it's very, and they love it because it's easy to understand. So you have to, you have to understand logic and you have to have something where you can piece things together. Now both of these engines are are what I would call WYSIWYG because, you know, the what you see is what you get. Because, uh, and it was weird, when I very first started playing with Unity and Unreal, it was a very different way of thinking because the way that I approach things as a programmer is I open up a program called Visual Studio and I write a bunch of code and I compile that code (laughs) and that code loads a bunch of assets, which then runs my game. So my game, to me, the thing that I'm using is looking at a bunch of text. Unity and Unreal are very different. You open up a tool that shows a 3D world or 2D or whatever. You drag objects, put them into that world and attach functionality to those objects. I could build my entire level with no functionality whatsoever. I can just drag a bunch of objects in there and I can have my whole scene going. And then I can attach functionality to those objects to say, okay, this is a key. I want this object to spin in place. And when the player touches this object, I want to, you know, give the player the key or whatever. And now the player's ability.
0: You know, probably the most famous person outside of gaming uh, to do that is Matt Workman, who's created this whole Cinetracer video game for Hollywood, and it's built on, as a video game player, but it's how, how you, it, 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 it looks, it's a video game to help you make your virtual production set. That's basically it. And he yep. built it to, to do that, okay. That is okay. exactly
1: right, yep. You drag a bunch of stuff in, and the Mandalorian famously used Unreal Engine for a lot of their stuff, right? So
0: it's kind of like a pre-visualization tool for somebody who's looking at it from the outside in.
1: And we'll get to that when we get to the actual making of the game. Right now we're just trying to make a decision between the ba- major engines. Unity has some advantages as well. Um, Unity has much better documentation, oh man. And that's worth its weight in <laughs> gold. Unity also tends to be simpler. Um, C++ is not an easy language. And even really experienced developers and programmers who've been programming for 700 years or whatever, they prefer C Sharp. C is just a better language for a lot of people to get into. They prefer it. They like it. It's sort of easier to work in. My preference is C++, but I also recognize that that's because I've been doing it for 24 years. And so all the weird esoteric stuff that makes it really hard for people, I'm just used to. Um, And because I've been doing it for so long, I sort of like it better. Right. C Sharp is is an excellent, excellent language, and it is easier to do a lot of things It's sort of safer because you're not dealing with raw memory as much. And Unity is just sort of easier. With Unreal, for instance, you have to, like, to make AI, you have to create all these different objects to put together, and, like, there's a lot of things to kind of put together to, to sort of forge this object. With Unity, it's just kind of easier to make all of that work. So they're, they're, just, they're easier to get started with and all that kind of stuff. It's m- sort of more supported. They're the absolute kings of mobile. If we're making a mobile game, I don't even look at Unreal. Unreal tries to do it. They're sort of okay, but they're too heavyweight. Unreal is a really heavyweight engine, whereas Unity is a much lighter engine. So if I'm making a mobile game or anything really 2D, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push towards Unity, definitely. They're really good at that.
0: For somebody like me, or not me, I'm not going to try a video game. I'm going, to, I'm going to fight my way through this conversation with you and, and try and not look too, too much like an idiot. But when somebody's trying to make that game and they're going, okay, I've got my idea, I've got my basic design, I should be sticking to these two to start out, kind of a soft entry.
1: Yes and no. Yeah, if you're going to do a soft entry into games, I don't even know. So no, the, I would look at these two as possibilities. Okay because now I want to talk about going and eating. So these are like the middle grounds, in my opinion, which are in terms of like how much you have to build yourself because they're nice and generic. They can kind of make anything. So let's slip over towards, if I know I'm making a very specific thing, there may already be a game engine that's specifically geared towards that thing. For example, I want to make a JRPG. Well, RPG Maker is designed to make JRPGs and with minimal coding experience, you can make a JRPG, and you can make one that's fairly complicated. Okay,
0: well, I know R, R, you know
1: RPG role playing JRPG is Japanese role playing game. Okay, which is which is its own sort of special genre. It's like okay. old Final Fantasy. You know, okay, got it, got it. Yep, those are old JRPGs, and, and there's a whole uh, it's it's essentially its own special genre of game. Uh, typically very difficult, lots of fiddly bits, and lots of moving parts and things. Sure. I, I've I've seen some of those games, and and it's
0: just it's just a cacophony of visuals. And you're like, I don't know what's happening.
1: I see it happening is a really good description of a JRPG for someone who's never played them before. That's definitely true.
0: Right. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of us are no up, up, you know, scrolling left, scrolling down runner games, even, even first person shooter games. We've all played those games, but yeah, some of those JRPG games, like I, this is a lot of things
1: happening at the same time. Why do I have
0: 50 characters attached to me at once? This is crazy.
1: Your typical JRPG is deeply systemic like lots of systems all working together. The system design is usually really strong. Usually they're very story based and the vast majority of them deal with like end of world, like it's like massive earth shattering, universe shattering things. And, you know, think of it like anime in a game, right? So like a lot of anime, for instance, ends up dealing with large earth shattering things. And so, you know, it's, it's a whole genre of game. Yeah, certainly a concept, not a, hey, find the thing you win. Another one is like visual novels are kind of a thing as well. If you're making something that's kind of a, more of a visual novel where it's like talking heads talking to each other against the background and, you know, the player has some choices and things like that. Well, Renpai is another kind of game engine that's really good and really popular for that kind of game. A single character walking around, stop. Choose it's actually not engine. even that. It's more like literally hand paint, like, like a background. Like you don't even see the player. Like it's a background and people are talking to you, it's very much a visual novel. It's mostly you're reading and looking at some interesting pictures. Like it's, so like literally a visual novel, things like that. So Ren is, is is designed for that. And so if you're going for those things, then there's plugins for stuff. A friend of mine worked on something called Fungus for Unity, which is meant to also compete with that. And it's, you know, there's these frameworks that you can get that their whole purpose is to make like specific types of games that are popular much easier to develop. So if you know that you're doing a game like that then you probably want to go towards like an engine like that and those engines are much easier to get into than something like Unity or Unreal. Cuz they have to be generic and they have to they require a lot of code and stuff like that. Even if you're you know something like Construct is another engine which is really good at like 2D stuff and pretty solid for you know if you're going to do a platformer or something. So these there's engines that are geared towards the specific thing that you're trying to do. And then the exact opposite end of the spectrum you have a hand-grown sort of like you you develop your own thing you might pull a few libraries in but you're basically writing your own stuff mostly from scratch okay
0: is there any recent examples of that floating around still or is writing your thing from scratch yeah
1: sure the Sims four we used very little like truly third-party technology i'm working on a game right now that does it okay the question is why would I do that? Who, who would do that, right? <laughs> and here's the problem with engines—the real problem with engines, especially engines like like Unity has this problem, Unreal has this problem. Any major engine is going to have this problem. So they have back of the box features, right? Pathfinding, AI, all that kind of stuff. We'll use pathfinding. I'm an AI programmer, so that's you know that's I'll just use that as an example. Pathfinding is I want to get from point A to point B.
0: Right. Very simple stuff. Follow this. Follow that. The as you're walking, the little blocks change color, and arrow pops up. Something keys. It, it's that that base, The basic pathfinding. I. It's concept. literally
1: yeah. It's literally. I want to get my agent needs to go from this point to that point. And under the covers, it uses an algorithm called typically uses an algorithm called A star, and you know it's just this whole like graph search, and it's a whole thing. So it's a, it's a somewhat complicated problem. Now, if Unity's pathfinding is exactly what you need and you don't need it to do anything else, you're fine. As soon if, if it gets you 80% of the way there, let's say it gets you. Let's say it's mostly what you need, but it's not quite going to work. Now you might as well not even have Unity have pathfinding because you're going to have to write it yourself because you can't modify it. You can't go in and change how their pathfinding works. You can't extend it. Unreal, you have a little more power to extend things, but not, I mean, I'm not going to go in and rewrite how nav power or whatever they're using works, right? I'm, or I forget what they use, but I'm not going to go in and rewrite how all that works. I would have to, I'd have to figure it out myself. And even if you do, it's, you generally try not to modify the engine because then updates become really difficult to do. You have to merge in their updates to yours. So if it doesn't, and so if, you know, same thing like game objects. So, Unity's game object system currently, and I'm going to ignore their ECS system right now because it's not really ready for prime time, but their current base game object system is fine, but it's very slow if you have thousands and thousands of objects. It tends to be slow, they can't all be game objects. Unreal is similar. So, you end up having to write your own, Do something that's a little sort of faster that's geared towards the thing that you're doing. It's not bad, their game object system is not bad at all. It's just heavy weight for, I have thousands of objects that are all very simple. And, and that list goes on. So you have to look at what your actual feature set is and see how, you know, does this engine just solve the problem for me? Because really at the end of the day, the, the advantage of using an engine is, I don't have to write that thing, right? I don't have to write the render. That makes sense. So,
0: I mean, if somebody is is thinking about doing their game development um, and you had mentioned how much money you got, what resources do you have, that makes sense where it's like, well, this is what I want it to do. I want all these cool things. I would have to write it myself to do all these cool things or if 75%, 80% of those things I can do off the shelf. Is that hindering my game or do I want to make those compromises? gives you that choice of what you want to do. I'll
1: give you a great example. RimWorld is a game that I worked on very briefly. And when I got in there, I realized that all, the, all he does is he has a single Unity scene. He has one game object and he uses that to launch all of the custom code he wrote. All the pathfinding, all the game objects, all those things was, were custom written, everything. And I asked him at one point, I'm like, why are you even using Unity? Right? Because the only thing he's using Unity for is the fact that it's cross-platform, so it can compile on a bunch of different platforms. And he's using the rendering system and he's using the input system, and that's it. And I'm like, at that point, there's libraries that are truly free that you could get all of that for. You could, you, you don't have to pay a licensing fee to Unity for any of that. You could have done it for free. And You know, it's, it's, that's a great example of, and for him, I think it all sort of happened organically. Like he didn't really know that that's what was going to happen, but he he was way, way, way too far along to like rewrite it. So, you know, once you've made the (laughs) right, right. right. (laughs) but yeah, I mean, he's, he, he ends up having to pay a licensing fee to Unity where he's using kind of not much of their stuff. And and you know, he liked using C rather than C. My suggestion was using SDL or something, which was more of a C library, but you, you could have done the same thing in C, sharp right? There's XNA and other such things that have been used for games and things, so he could have used some other thing. So, a lot of this comes down to that. There's a great talk by I forget the guy's name, but he uh, he was like the like one of the founders of Clay, spelled K L E I. They do like Don't Starve, Mark of the Ninja. Oxygen Not Included. They they do a bunch of games, lots of like sort of interesting original games. And he did a talk and he, he had the same point that I just made, which was, you know, if you're using a third party engine, really think about what does that actually get you? What is that really buying you? Because at the end of the day, you're trying to make it so that you're doing less work and spending more time working on the game as opposed to the technology for the game or... Like you're trying to have it save you time and that the money that you spend on the licensing of the engine thus reduces that overall cost,
0: right? So that's
1: the goal. It can
0: become that big of a cost-benefit analysis if you're really developing a game. Those, those numbers do get high enough up where we could have hired three more developers
1: versus exactly
0: a licensing fee.
1: Okay. That's it. Exactly. Yep. And uh, we could have controlled the technology. Right, because if you use Unity or Unreal or RPG Maker, or Godot or whatever, you are now beholden to their dev cycle, and Unity has bugs. I mean, every engine's going to have bugs, of course they do. That's that's how software works. Uh, and so you're. And it's not like you know I'm going to make a better pathfinding system than Unity, because the reality is my pathfinding system is used by me their pathfinding system is used by hundreds of developers. So theirs is going to have more testing time than mine is. Just, I mean, that's the reality. Just by no, sure. I'm not saying, you know, reinvent the wheel. If Unity gives you what you want, great, go for it. It's worth it, worth every penny. So, you know, Unreal tends to be better for sort of, I don't know, like action adventure type games and things like that. Unity tends to be better for 2D stuff, but, you know, they're both fine choices. So on top of all of the things that I've said, play with both of them, play with a few different engines. And one of them, you'll just sort of like using better. Like you'll be less angry at the interface.
0: (laughs) I like how you said that's, that's, I think something that comes up with a lot of people who use any kind of software. What am I not going to punch? Yeah. What am I not going to swear out most of my
1: day? (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. That's something really to consider. Now, one thing that I will say, students do this all the time. Um, they make this decision where they're like, well, I know Unity better than Unreal, so I'm just gonna use Unity. That's a terrible way to think about it, unless, unless you, well, if you're making a really small, short game, like if you're like, we have six months to do this and we just have to get it done, that's maybe reasonable. But if you're making a game, like a real core game, that's like, it's gonna be two, four years of your life, you're gonna learn whatever tool you're using. You're gonna learn it really, really well. Might be a little slower start, but that's not, you know, in the grand scheme of things, It's not, that's, I would not even really make that a consideration if it were me making a a larger game again, short contract. Yeah. That's an issue. Longer term thing. I wouldn't even think about that. We're jumping around and we're talking
0: about a lot of different things. So from, from that student perspective, when we're teaching these, these courses, um, the idea is okay. Remember, like you just said, you know, something very, very important six months or two to four years. So a game is either, hey, I'm going to make it this summer. I'm going to make it over a couple of semesters. I'm going to make it with my friends, see what happens. Or I now have a job for the next two to four years coding. I need to know how to use this program yeah. like the back of my hand.
1: Finishing a game is very different than trying to make a game. <laughs> They're very different worlds. There's, there's some rules of thumb that I'll give you when we get to that point. So this is just the, let's choose a technology to use. Right. Now, let's say that we've chosen that technology. We have the technology that we're going to use. Um, And we've chosen an engine or we're gonna roll our own or something. No matter what you do, there's also going to be the, there's, games have pillars of of design or whatever. Like these are the major things that make this game, right? Um, And so, you know, you have to think about what those things are, work with design, work with art, and say, this is what what we're trying to achieve. And that's gonna drive a lot of decisions. Give me some examples of those. Because, I mean, the first thing I can think of is just how
0: good it looks. And from there, it's a whole lot of problems or a whole lot of issues. Like you had mentioned the dark games. And anybody yeah. who's worked in video like myself, darkness convincingly is very difficult no matter what you're doing. And the most engaging and the most fun. If it's dark and scary, it's great. If it's bright colors, you're like, eh, well, okay, yeah,
1: not that fun. There's a reason why you know modern TVs have pushed the high dynamic range and all that kind of stuff because, and games are supporting that kind of thing because, you know, there's something you know. Go watch an old horror movie. What like Alien is a really great example. If you actually watch Alien, like really pay attention to it, how often do you actually see the alien? It's pretty rare. Exactly right. The very thing is the darkness and the in the shadows and like not knowing where it is and hearing it. Like, audio is one of the most important things with, with horror. Yeah, I was, I
0: was about to say that, that the audio in games is paramount.
1: It's so important. But, okay, let's talk about pillars. So there's different types. You know, you mentioned how, how does it look. I wouldn't even call that a design pillar of any kind. You could make design something else. However, that is a consideration, right? How many triangles am I trying to push to this thing? That's going to change a lot. Um, how complicated is it going to be there? But design pillars, I'm talking about, you know, so if you look at something like Ghost of Tsushima, you know, what are the major design pillars? Well, they're very story-driven. They're trying to make you feel like this fallen samurai and trying to have... There's a, there's a moral decision that's made in this game. The game, you've fallen... This is back when Japan was attacked by Mongolia. And so, like, it's falling. And they've, they've attacked and they've slaughtered your people. And you have to do things that go against your samurai code of honor to try and win back your people. And it's this this constant sort of moral struggle with your own sensibilities versus, you know, actually saving people. And so that's central to their sort of story and how they do it. Their gameplay is very much like the, the two major approaches to dealing with threats is you can walk forward and like fight them, you know, face to face openly. or you can be like a sneaky kind of ninja character and they support both and so it's like well let's think about design privilege how can we really get that and so one of the things for instance is to step forward and literally there's a button that you press that will call out and say come fight me and then a bunch of guys come and fight you or you can try and be stealthy and come down and like cut people's throats right and what they're really trying to do one of their pillars and also to go back sort of visually is they're trying to make a Kurosawa film into a game. That's really what they're trying. In fact, I have a Kurosawa mode that's like black and white with film grain.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. They do. Okay, that, kind of that's great. insane. That's awesome. <laughs> I can't play it. Um, I turn it on a few times just to see it, but I can't do it because the colors in that game are so incredibly vivid and beautiful that I can't turn it off.
0: No, I, I, I pulled it up to, to go. I'm going, Oh my gosh, this is, this is not a game. This is, This is an immersive world. It's stunning. Oh, it's an
1: immersive world. That's a great way of putting it. It is absolutely stunning, and it's open world and all that stuff. Okay, so let's think about how we'd make a game. And I'm using Ghost of Tsushima because I'm guessing that many of our listeners have at least played it or are familiar with it in some way. Let's think about what we have to do to make this kind of game. What are the major pillars? Well, it's open world. You can go anywhere. You can walk in one direction, go from one end of the map to the other. Already, that's going to tell me that we're going to need some kind of uh, streaming technology that allows us to load chunks of the world and throw other chunks away, you're not going to have that whole thing in memory on a PS4 or any modern system. So, you know, these are some major, okay. So that's to me a big technical risk.
0: And because, and then just to, to explain why that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of these immersive world games is sometimes that's more fun than the gameplay is to go around and explore and see what people have designed and see what's happened. And if you're designing a game, you want to throw all that stuff there and you're saying, you know, you've got to think about, okay, that's great, but you now have computing limitations.
1: It's getting around that. And yeah, the exploration is part of the game. You want to wander around and explore. Here's a really interesting example. I don't know anyone who's actually done this before, but so there's a, a uh, the Elder Scrolls series, which is like Morrowind and Oblivion and Skyrim and all these games. People love Skyrim. They're these like fantasy, uh, really fantasy games. And so I've played Morrowind, Oblivion, and Skyrim. Now, Oblivion I had a really interesting experience with. Here, was here my experience with Oblivion, because there's story and all this stuff, mm-hmm. this epic open world. And so in Oblivion, the way that I played, you start out in a jail, you're, you're in jail, and uh, for some unknown reason. And so I'm a role player. So I'm sitting there, going, okay, why am I in jail? Okay, I'm a thief, that's why. And so I'm going to play this like, thief character. Okay thief mage character and then the emperor of the whole of, of you know your land comes in voiced by Patrick Stewart and says uh you know like comes into your jail cell and goes through like an escape like your jail cell is built on this like escape hatch and so you follow him and uh you know you follow him you immediately trust him because he's voiced by Patrick Stewart basically. of course of course <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, and, and at, at the end he dies, uh, like the end of this little sequence, you know, basically the tutorial sequence, he and all of his guards die, so you're left alone. And his very thing is like, you must close the gates of oblivion. And I'm like, I'm not gonna close the gates of oblivion. I'm a house thief. And I went and did none of the main quest. I played that game for 80 something hours. I did none of the main quest. And I basically went from town to town stealing things. And I told my own story. I, di- I closed exactly zero gates. I don't even know what the main story is. I assume it has to do with closing gates of Oblivion, but I have (laughs) no idea. I've seen screenshots of like an alien world and I'm assuming that you like go through the gates to do a thing, but I've literally never played any of the main quest line at all. I played a lot of the side quests of like, like I did the whole Thief's Guild quest. I did a bunch of that stuff because that was the story that I wanted to tell and I could tell my own story. And that to me is the power of a game like Oblivion because I can, or, or Skyrim or any of these games, Skyrim, I did actually play through the main story, but you know, you kind of tell your own story and you know, that's powerful for, for me.
0: This is, I know different from game developing, but that's one of the things that comes up a lot with video games now, or always has been now, but finally with the technology that you're talking about is you can play a game from beginning to end and you're done, or you can play a game and go, well, I'm not going to play this game. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, enjoy these other things, all what would be Easter eggs and, mm-hmm. and now side quests and, and all these other ways of playing the game to where it's not necessarily ending.
1: Or, you know, you can be somebody like me goes, I beat the game. I'm done. Go give me another one. It really depends on what your goal, like these are the pillars of the game. So taking another example, you have a game like, well, it's not even about exploration. So like uh, another game that's, that I'm playing now is called Spiritfarer. And that's very heavily story-based, beautiful, beautiful art, pretty open, you can explore most of the world. They they put you behind barriers in certain cases, so you need to get to certain points to to explore past certain points, but it's mostly open, though if you really pay attention, the order in which you do major story beats uh, is pretty much set, it's fairly linear. And that could be, that feels like the kind of game that you'd play once. any kind of like adventure game where like, I'm going through this game and it is a story. And when I'm done with this story, I'm probably not going to play this again because the game is story or I'll play it, you know, five years from now or something or two years from now when I've forgotten the story, much like watching a movie. It's like, I'm going to watch a movie. I really love, I just rewatched Men of Honor, which is one of my favorite movies. And I hadn't watched it in a bunch of years. So it was cool to rewatch this movie and be like, I know all these things are going to happen, but it's cool to rewatch it. Cause I've forgotten a lot of the moments, the beats, Or same thing with a book, like I'm rereading the Honor Harrington series now. So once you've figured out these pillars, you have to assess, and a lot of this comes with experience, but you have to assess what what are the technical risks, right? What are the risks? So an open world, that's a risk, you know, a design risk. From some, on a
0: production standpoint, it's, it does sound like, are you going to end? Are, are you done? Are we, are we finished making cool
1: things? Because we do have to release this. Can we please stop? Oh, yeah. There's always that. <laughs> when I say technical risk here, I'm like, that's a hard problem to solve. Open world with a beautiful, lush world like what they have is hard to solve. There, okay, so I mentioned uh, in Ghost of Tsushima, there's the fights, right? So if I have to go deal with these guys, I can fight them open like a samurai, or I can be more stealthy like a ninja that's an encounter, right? That seems like it's gonna be a difficult thing to pull off from a design point of view, that's something that we're gonna to have to figure out as well. And so on, there's things like that, like what are, what are the difficult parts? And so the next stage is doing a series of prototypes. That's the next step, usually with programming and design working together. At this time, art may or may not be working with us, Usually you have like concept artists at this point figuring out what is this game even going to look like. You might have some 3D modelers, you might have some people in there because they might want to say, well, especially if, if we have a game that has like a high fidelity, like we're talking Ghosts of Tsushima, the particle system is really impressive to me, for instance. Like they're probably creating some things we're going to try and like, here's what it sort of represents. The goal of this is to come up with your vertical slice. And usually you have a bunch of prototypes to try and like, okay, how are we going to do these things? And some of them are purely technical, like the open world. We're going to say, here's our design for the technical open world part of it, which design doesn't really have a lot of feedback on. Cause it's just like, we just want to have an, a, an infinitely streaming world. Um, and so on. And there may be things that programming doesn't, their programming is just sort of there to support. For example, that fight scene it's, can we make fights feel good? And once we have these, eventually we're going to try and merge that stuff into what we call a vertical slice. A vertical slice says, and you may have several for a larger game, it is this is representative of what the game is going to be so that you can sit an investor or somebody in front of it and say, you're basically going to be doing this for, you know, 40 hours or whatever. Like these types of things. And you're getting what's called the core loop of the game. What is the thing I'm going to be doing? And every game I've worked on has some version of that. The way that I like to put it, when you're talking about games that have like levels and things, you know, level one, level two, I like to put it in that you're basically building the second level of the game. And that's a reasonable vertical slice. Not the first level, where you don't have any of the things and you're still in tutorial land because tutorials for their own beast. You're building like the second level, where the player kind of knows what they're doing a little bit and they have a lot of their different, you know, they have some of their different abilities. And that gives you an idea of... You know, what does the game want to be? Is the game interesting? Is this fun? Is there, is there aspects of this that we can pull from? Cause it's not going to be, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible for a long time. <laughs> but when you're experienced, you can kind of see, oh, there it is. That's what the game wants to be. And you can start carving, you know, like, like building a marble statue, you're carving away piece by piece to like, here's what this is. And part of the trick of being a designer or a programmer or developer of any kind is being able to look at this rough thing and say, here's what this thing wants to be. Let's let it be that and foster it. A project I'm working on now started as this like, almost JRPG style game. And as I, re- as I worked on it, I'm like, you know, the thing that this game really wants is to, be, is to have the story be the front and center thing. That's the goal of it. And like, I cut all these features and realized, no, that the game really started to take shape when I realized that, One, it's a story about, um, it's a father kind of daughter thing. And it's a story about the girl, not about the father and his grief. It's a story about the girl going through this thing and and going through this fantasy world. I'm like, okay, that's, it's, it's definitely about that. And it's about the story. It's not about the gameplay of like, let's do a bunch of fight scenes and stuff. It's like, no, it's about the story. That's front and center. The gameplay has to support it and you know, you iterate on over and over and over. And I've been working on this little project for a couple of years now, off and on, I guess, a couple of years. And the, the current version of the game, it doesn't look anything like the old version. And so I have a vertical slice of it, and I have a bunch of art, and it's mostly representative of what the final game is gonna look like. And I can put it finally in front of people, and it's like 15 minutes of gameplay, if that, 10 to 15 minutes of gameplay but people can go through and they can play it and then they can give me feedback about like, yeah, would you enjoy doing this type of thing, living in this world for the next, you know, my game's gonna be maybe eight to 10 hours long. Would you enjoy living in this world for that long? And uh, I always love looking at old, The Sims 3 was like a 2D prototype, right? It didn't have anything 3D in it. It was like circles and boxes, who cares? You're trying to see like, what is this thing we're trying to build? So that's that first step, is the prototypes pushing towards a vertical slice. That's your first major step.
0: And from what you're explaining to me, what you explained earlier, that that does seem, it takes all that we talked about of which which engine you're talking about and almost going, okay, however, big asterisk here, everything you just decided is not what it's now going to be. Is that when you redesign or is that when you go, hey, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out? Or is that not really, is that the headache every worker has and it's like, well, that's just part of game development?
1: Yes to all of those, right? So (laughs) you could get there and you could be like, wow, this is not what this game wants to be. I'll give you another example, Subnautica. There's a really good GDC talk on it, and I may even be out there for free, but I saw this talk. They talk about the design of Subnautica. So Subnautica is this, like, open world, deep sea. It's one of my very favorite games. It's like a survival deep sea sort of game. You're basically lost on this ocean planet, and you are building this like underwater base and you have to like explore this massive world and there's a story behind it. It's like, it ticks all the boxes for me. It's a beautiful game. They made it in Unity, by the way. That's when I realized like, oh, Unity is an up and comer in terms of rendering performance, uh, rendering and stuff. You can see the hitches, but man, they pushed Unity to its limits. Brilliantly, brilliantly done game. Really, really good. Again, one of my favorite games. So they talk about the design one of their original goals was to make it a procedurally generated world. So that means that the world is, I hesitate to say random, because random implies they're just rolling a bunch of dice, but algorithmically generated. So in other words, it's a different world every time you play it. And they're like, that's not what this game wants to be. The artists came up and they said, here are these amazing things that we've done. And they pulled away from it. And they're like, no, we're gonna hand design everything because we want a hand-designed, curated experience. Another thing that they, they didn't realize, their fans were the ones who actually told them this when they did Early Access. They accidentally made a horror game. <laughs> they didn't realize it was going to be a horror game. And it kind of is, especially as you get deeper and deeper. It is a terrifying game in, in certain moments. There are some really tense moments in that game. Some of my longest, you know, I'll sit there for like an hour watching this creature because I'm like, I don't want to go near that. And you have to like okay i'm gonna go here we go and it's, this, <laughs> it's this terrifying experience and it's so good and that's that's an example where it's like sometimes you can pivot on that kind of stuff so like the procedural content they had they scrapped it and they moved on but for the horror thing they're like sometimes it doesn't take a rewrite or a rethinking of it it's more like that's what it wants to be let's so like i keep saying the game wants to be the game is, it's, is a living entity Sure, sure it almost,
0: I mean, on, in, a, in, a, in a strange way, it almost sounds like a documentary where, yeah, that's your idea, but then something else happened and somebody else looked at it and somebody with a new set of eyes is going, hey, that's a horror game or, hey, that's a fun game or that doesn't matter, lean into this and you do need to be able to pivot and change and, and, and it is entertainment when it all comes down to it.
1: Yep. You think about a game like, or just think about, writers talk about this all the time where they're like, Yeah, I didn't know what was gonna happen at the end of the book either. The characters just did what they were gonna do. You know, I do stage acting um, and one of the things I do is like improvisational theater, which is basically plays without scripts. So not so much the comedy stuff, although I do that too, but like a play without a script. So we're just creating it in the moment. And sometimes it's like, I don't know what my character was gonna do until they've just done it. Because you just get into the role so much and games are the same way. Games are a living entity while they're being built. And the worst thing you could do is force it to be its own thing. And sometimes it's story. Sometimes it's, you know, Florence, which if, if you haven't played Florence, it's a brilliant, casual game, really easy to get into. Um, it's a game that you can download on your phone. If you don't have it, get it. And my, my one suggestion that I'll give you with playing the game is play it with headphones. Okay. And if you can, play it in one sitting. It's about an hour, a little more than an hour. It is a brilliant Brilliant game, written by somebody who doesn't like story games, but it's a beautiful story game. Well, it's a, it's basically the story of a relationship, and I don't know. I guess I don't want to give away the end, but I kind of have to for this description. So, you know, <laughs> well,
0: no, but I, I mean, the game it doesn't look like a normal video game to somebody who's thinking of video games as shooter games. It it, it definitely no. is an experience. It's an experience. It's, it's, it, it, I think when you set it up, but I think play. It's a, it's, a, it's a piece of theater.
1: It is. Is
0: the best way
1: to describe it. I've never it. seen where the this story is ex- like, there are maybe 20, maybe 15 to 20 words in the entire game. The story is entirely expressed through art and through gameplay more than I've seen in many other games. And it really shows like it, they did a brilliant job. Play the game, it's, it's beautiful. I'm not going to give it away, but the end of the game. Is the person who was writing the game, the story, the main storyteller, the main designer was like, This is what I'm, this is, this is, has to happen. Everyone was like, No, that's a terrible idea. And he pushed for it and pushed for it. And finally he gave in and said, You know what? You're right. And he gave this GDC talk on how they built it. And he said at the end, He's like, You know, they were right. 100%. I was too locked in my own shit. They were right. And I loved that because I've had to make those same decisions too. I actually, in this game that I just talked about that I'm working on, I was locked into it being the father's story because it's, you know, like many story-based games, it's about one of my own experiences. I lost someone very, very dear to me. And so it's about expressing that through art. And so the father in that story is me. While I'm not a father, it's like I was using that as a vehicle. And I'm like, that's not what the game wants to be. The game wants to be the daughter's perspective. The game wants to be the story of this innocent creature. And I'm like, okay, that's what we're going to go for. The game is a living entity, it really is. And a big part of it, you'll hear a lot of designers talk about it in the same way. You listen to what the game wants to be. What is, what is this game? What does it want to be? Where does it want to go? And you do that through iteration. And so a lot of what we're trying to do and why engines like Unity and Unreal are so are so great is because they allow for fast iteration. You can, you know, drop a bunch of stuff into a level and then run around and play the level and it's gonna be terrible. And you accept that it's terrible and it's gonna be terrible for a long time. But you can see those pieces and chip away at those rough edges and realize, oh no, here's, here's the thing that's fun. Let's gravitate towards that. So many games are like that, where they're like, it was originally about this, but we realized that this little tiny thing we did here was the fun thing. So we lean into that and, everything else becomes secondary.
0: Okay. And so we've gotten over the pillars, then we figured that stuff out and mm-hmm. then comes that next step of debugging it or after all the iterations where, where from a programming
1: standpoint. Yeah. So once we have this kind of vertical slice, we've probably built up most of the core architecture. This in, in my view is probably the last time that we really have time to make any significant changes. When I say significant, I mean, Unity just isn't gonna work for us or Unreal is just not gonna work for us. We could probably change engines or whatever at that point. It's not great, but we can. (laughs) Once we get into production, you can't, you're sort of stuck with what you got. Because after that, what we're gonna start doing is now we, we know the prototype, we probably have a pretty decent idea of what we're trying to build. We have our vertical slice. So the next thing that we wanna do is we want to actually start pushing towards production. Pre-production is probably done by now. And now we're gonna push towards production. So at that point, if you're on a decent sized, you know, if you have a, a decent sized company, you will start hiring people, pulling people from other projects, stuff like that. And that's when you ramp up your people. Because if you know what you're doing, you can start going wide and go, okay, we know what this is. Now we just need to build up the content for it. You know, we've built level two and level two is fun. Now we need to build level one, three, four, and so on, right? And so we can just build, create a team to build a bunch of these things. There's still iteration. There's still a bunch of like, like you're still gonna make changes and you still make, might make fairly significant changes. I mean, you might make whole pivots and things, you, but you try and limit that and you're generally gonna be able to go wide at this point and start really making the game.
0: And if I was a smaller developer, like I was doing a smaller game, it was one or two people, it's still the same idea, I've, I've, I'm locked in, I've got my, my engine slash programming slash the actual computer tool yep. I need,
1: and now it's just off to the races. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a solo developer or a small developer, that's when you have to start considering, that's when schedule becomes typically much more locked in. So you'll have producers or somebody and they'll say, okay, well, we know that here's where we're going to try and ship so let's work backwards and figure out all the things that we're going to need to do to make this happen and so you're making you're making the game this is when you're making the game this is probably the bulk of your development is is this part depending on the game you're making some people spend a lot of time in r&d but you know this is where you're making the bulk of the game and where you know hopefully everything goes smoothly which it won't it never does <laughs> of it never course no <laughs> it's going to be crazy the entire time but you, now you have, you have a, a, you know, an X on the map or whatever. Now you generally know at least the direction, like you at least have a heading that you're going in. And you make the thing. And that can take anywhere from a few months to many, many years. And then
0: from there, it's just, uh, then, then it goes into the marketing hands and you, you know, move on to the next thing.
1: No, because then we go into what we call the, uh, what I call the alpha beta dance which is, and so what you're doing so you, there's certain milestones that you're hitting. And if you're working for a third party your like your publisher is going to set those milestones, if you're working for yourself, you have to set them. There's different development methodologies like scrum, you know, agile development, there's uh, waterfall. There's all these different other methodologies, you know, agile tends to be the more common one these days where you set up like sprints, which are some length, my personal ones that I have for my own project right now for my little team of three people, are month-long. I just say for the month of, of September, here's what we're trying to get done. For the month of October, here's what we're trying to get done. And you, know, you push, push towards, what you're trying to push towards is the game being done. And there's, you know, two major milestones that come at the end. There's alpha and there's beta. And the problem is that with the rise of indie developers trying to market their own projects, the terms alpha and beta have become very, very muddy. In, in just like, especially from the player's point of view, alpha and beta have almost no meaning. I have people say, this is a beta version of the game and it's just not even close to done. And that's <laughs> by definition <laughs> not, not what alpha and beta mean.
0: Tell me what you think alpha and beta is. Cause we,
1: everybody has seen, oh, it's a beta release. It's a beta release. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. it's beta. Every company is, is different, but in general, alpha means every aspect of the game is represented in some way. It doesn't have to be done. But it has to be there in some way. It could probably, cr- it might crash somewhere, or it might be broken. You might have temporary assets. You might have a, you know, I remember when we hit alpha on one of the SimCity games, there's these advisors that tell you what to do, and they weren't, they, they, there's sort of like their headshots were there, but nothing else was there, you know. So you can have like pieces missing, but for the most part, the entire game is there. And that's one of the issues that I see with a lot of indie games, they're like, it's an alpha game. No, it's not because you have, you haven't even finished designing the game. Alpha says it's all kind of there and design is more or less locked, right? Like the, like the game is basically there and you can generally complete it from beginning to end.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's not very
1: common anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's what alpha is supposed to mean. Because then it, you, once you hit alpha, your, your entire development methodology changes. Because now you, because now everything's locked and you're like, you know, we're not gonna redesign this system, it's there. What we're gonna do, and sometimes you do, you know, obviously there's exceptions, but for the most part, like the game is there and you're finishing it, you're filling in the content. You know, it's about filling in the blanks as opposed to, you know, designing this new level or whatever, like you've, you've answered the big questions, you're fixing bugs, a lot of d- development becomes fixing bugs at that point and so on. Beta means the game is done, except for bug fixing, usually. That's what beta is supposed to mean. And when they say beta testing, it's supposed to mean you're you're starting to go, you know, you might have an internal QA team, but you're going wider for a select group to find more issues that you're just gonna find by having more eyes on it. You might make some you might make some tuning tweaks and stuff, but beta typically means the code is locked, the, the design is locked. And what I mean by locked is The changes we're making usually have to be approved, and they're usually like fixes to existing issues as opposed to adding new things. So locked means we're not adding anything new. And so beta is for engineering almost entirely bug fixing. Like we're just fixing bugs. Most of alpha is that too, but beta, you know, we're doing that. And alpha and beta are not short things. They can last for a while. I want to say The Sims 4 was... 6 or 8 months or something i forget but it, it could be a long time once you've done that once you're in beta you are pushing towards release candidate which we call rc or sometimes goldmaster gm you know depending on how old you are basically uh goldmaster comes from older like early early companies we would call it goldmaster because we had a physical disk that we would create Whereas now that's not as common. So, you know, release. And so there's RC1, RC2, and so on. And these, RC stands for release candidate. And what we do, a release candidate says, okay, this is what we think we're going to ship to the users. And we take that and we we give it to certification. We take that and we give it to, you know, uh, if you work at a big company like EA, they're going to have they have a hardware lab that just has a ton of different types of computers and hardware and stuff and they're going to run it through but to those we're going to have QA do a full regression where they play the entire game from beginning to end trying and looking at every little thing and that can last a long time. During that time, dev team usually is do because that can take weeks. That can take a couple weeks. The dev team is usually working on a day one patch. You know, when you, when you install a game for the first time, you just done it, it's often a day one <laughs> patch. People get pissed about that stuff, but the reality is I'd rather have a day one patch than no day one patch. Because the alternative, and, and it's really smart, or sometimes DLC, you know, people are like, they're working on DLC before they even finish the game. Well, yeah, we are, and here's why. The reason why is because the game is done We're waiting for QA to tell us the game is actually done. Or if there's a bug that comes back, one person fixes the bug and then we lock the release. We can't do any work at all on the project because it's done from our perspective. Uh, There might be a critical bug, but there's a big barrier between we have finished writing code for it and the game is downloadable on Steam or whatever. And that's when we're working on things like DLC because otherwise we're idle, we're not doing anything. Um, we're just sitting there doing nothing. And so I'd rather have that day one patch because what's gonna happen is we're going to say, we call it KS, known shippable, we KS a bunch of bugs. We say, yeah, we're just gonna ship with this bug and it's fine. And then what we'll do is we'll say, while we're waiting for it, we're, we open that back up and we say, okay, here's what we're gonna do for our day one patch. And so we just time it in such a way so that when the game is actually released, there's a download that we've all also curated that's fixing some of these issues. So it gives us a little, like, we get to steal a little time doing that. And then the game ships, and we hope it does okay, and people go on vacation for a while, because they probably worked a lot. And that's a game. <laughs> Simple,
0: <laughs> easy, a quick, quick three-year turnaround, no fuss, no muss biggest piece
1: of advice that I ever got was when you're trying to figure out how long a game's going to take do your absolute best to think about every little thing and you start high level here are the major pillars and you dive deep into each of those and go down to like you know maybe not as far as task, but close to it where we say okay we think the combat system is going to take this long and you come up with your best estimate and you're really 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 conservative with the estimate so you're like I think this is going to take four days and give it a week it two weeks sometimes right take and and do that where you're like come up with a number that you're actually really confident with then double that number and that's probably not going to be enough time but it's close (laughs) that was the best advice I was ever given and if anything even that was a little too optimistic because what you never remember is oh something's going to happen or oh we're going to have to redesign this or we're going to re-architect this or refactor this thing or whatever And you just, you never realize that until you're actually in the weeds doing it.
0: So for, so for the, the, the student that's coming in, and I know this is an equally loaded question, but I want to try and, and and very quickly touch on it. If someone's coming in to, I want to do game development, I want to be a programmer. And I know a little bit of code because at that, at this point, I'm assuming most people who want to code are coming in knowing how to code at some point. Not everyone's coming in or am I wrong?
1: No, I would say that two thirds, maybe of the people who come into the, the here at the academy, like the department have never touched code even once.
0: So then, then my question is, if you're going to start, you know, you hear this and go, oh my gosh, this, this, I don't understand any of this, but I still want to make a video game. What are some of those essential building blocks? Somebody should start thinking about now? what Academy in their life anywhere, what are some of those essential building blocks to, if you think you want to be a game designer, you want to work in programming, where do I need to start?
1: If you want to learn programming, the first thing that I would do is I would learn the basics of programming and ignore the game aspect entirely. I would start with an intro to programming course or book or whatever you want and learn the basics of programming outside of anything. Because what I'll see people do is they'll learn like the Unity way of doing things and then their skills don't really transfer as well to other things. So learn the basics. And you can even start with a language that you know you're gonna play with. Like if you're like, yeah, I think Unity is the thing that calls to me, you can start with C sharp, that's fine. I generally don't recommend that as a, it depends on the direction you wanna go, I guess. If you just wanna play around with it and see if it's for you, Python is actually a really good language to start with. It's fairly simple and you can get going pretty quickly. And I would just play and learn the basics. In general, I would, I would just, yeah, I'd, I'd make your sort of first basic simple little program and then start thinking about like, okay, what, what could a game, how could I start making a game? And then I would do something like Unity. Unity is pretty easy to get started with and they have a lot of really great tutorials. There's tons of people using it, lots of like beginner material, very beginner friendly. You do have to know a little bit of programming, but not a huge amount to get at least get started with some of the tutorials. So I would learn like the very basics of programming and then jump into something like Unity. That's, you know, if you're going to make a game that's going to work there. Other things that you could do are jump into something like RPG Maker. If you're more interested in the design stuff where the the programming side is sort of less intense. But since this is a programming talk and we want to talk more about and we're assuming that people are like, oh, is programming really for me? That's how I would start. And it doesn't have to be that much. It's basically variables, if statements, looping, functions, and basic data structures like arrays. That's probably it. I'm probably missing something. But like it's off the top of my head, it's like kind of those things. And once you have a decent understanding of how that stuff basically works, then I would jump into it. And here at the Academy, you don't even touch anything remotely related to graphics for your first year. I mean, your freshman year, it's all just text. It's all console stuff. And we do little game type things, but we don't even play with any of that other stuff because here, we're, t- we're trying to train professional software engineers. So if we're talking about somebody who just wants to play around with games, that's what you do. If you wanna go the professional software engineering route, that's that's sort of a different answer where you need to start understanding, like, you know, you'll hit a wall at some point as you're developing stuff and you'll have to go back and learn like, data structures and algorithms and you know, what is a graph and you know, how does, how does the CPU work and what is the CPU cache and all this other stuff. Like you have to learn that stuff eventually. If you're gonna go like AAA professional developer route or even just wanna make something significant. But if you wanna play, go play. People have asked me like, how do I know, how, how do I know if I even wanna do game development? Cause game development is very different than playing games. And the answer is as much as this feels like it's probably a cop out, it's, you know, you start making games and if you know you make 10 games and if by the end of making those 10 games you still want to do it probably you want to do it for the rest of your life right you do the thing and if it's not interesting you don't don't do it anymore so in terms of like really getting started to have a concrete answer of what should i make my answer is tetris go make it i'm serious because the game design is already there you're doing zero game design okay you're just writing the technology, and it's this game itself is actually really straightforward, but it has all the aspects of a game. Because when I say make the game, I mean make the main menu, make a high scores thing, save those high scores to a file. You know, have the little effects of when the when you the blocks fall and there's a little you know it creates lines like there's little effects that happen. All the little polished things have to be there, but it's doable. It's small enough that it's doable and there's one little tricky, slightly tricky technical problem that you kind of have to solve, which is the blocks are generally these people's sort of first instinct is to make each block like its own game object. But the blocks, once they land, have to split apart. Because if I drop a you know, L-shaped block, I might only create a line with part of that block. So it's like there's, a te- there's an interesting technical problem you have to kind of solve there to figure out how that's going to work. So to me, Tetris is the perfect first game. Make that as your first game,
0: do it. (laughs) Tetris Tetris is the gateway drug to uh, becoming a game
1: developer. It's our hello world. Once you've done Tetris, uh, you can come to me and I'll tell you the next game that you should make. And I've had some people actually take me up on it. And uh, because you're going to learn if you've not really done much of this before and you want, again, this is if you want to be like a programmer. That's the way that I would do it. I would start with Tetris. Because again, it's going to force you to do all these things. And it's going to force you to conform to a design. You know, it's easy when you're just playing around with stuff to design around your own limitations. Whereas with Tetris, you don't get to do that. Like You're making this game. You're cloning this game. You have to do all the things, which means you have to force yourself to do things that are hard, which is great, because that's our job. The job of a software engineer is to solve problems. It's not even to write code. It's to solve problems. The job of a writer is not to write text in a Word document or on with a fountain pen or whatever. The job of a writer is to create engaging story and to tell that story, right? They, what they happen to do all day is type or write, you know, with their pen or whatever. But the thing that we're paying for is their ability to weave story. That's what we're paying for. You know, if someone like Martha Wells with her Murderbot series, I mean, her stories are incredibly compelling and that's why I love them. It's the same thing with a software engineer or even a game designer. What you're doing every day is very different than what we're actually paying you to do, right? What, As a software engineer, my job is to solve these technical problems, to figure out how we're gonna get this open world thing happening and go to Tsushima or whatever. But the thing that I'm actually doing to make that happen most of the time is writing code or reading it.
0: So there you go. A whole lot to digest and really probably one of the most eloquent conversations about how a video game is made. So again, if you are interested or you know somebody who is interested in working in video games, share this with them, subscribe to the podcast, let them know about this episode because it really is good, even if you're not a gamer like myself. But if you are, or you're interested in gaming, concept art, animation, please check out academyart.edu slash creativemind to learn more about the 40 plus areas of study in art and design. You can study, of course, on site in San Francisco or anywhere in the world with our online programs. Again, my name is Bobby Brill. Please hit subscribe on whatever device you're listening to so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. Thanks for listening.